All right, we're going to get started now. Uh, thank you all for coming. This is the Abolished Silicon Valley patent panel, uh, hosted by Notes from Below. I'm Wendy Liu, I'm an editor with Notes from Below. And we have four panelists here today to talk about uh, the state of things in the tech sector, how it relates upon work and our everyday lives, and also what we can do to change things. So I'm going to let the panelists introduce themselves, um, starting this way, and then and then we'll have questions from the audience. All at once? Uh, you, you, you go first. So just the yeah. <laughs> Oh, so hi, my name is Maga Magali um, Miranda. I'm a second year PhD student at UCLA, and I this is part of a kind of broader um, thesis I'm doing on care work in the gig economy in Los Angeles. And um, so if it's a little bit choppy, it's probably because it's part of a uh, much longer thesis. And just as a heads up, I apologize, there are spoiler alerts for the film Roma. So if you haven't heard it. So in December of last year, I attended a screening of Alfonso Cuadón's film Roma at the Landmark Theater in Los Angeles. It was hosted by domestic workers in various NGOs, including the National Domestic Workers Alliance, the Coalition of Humane Immigrant Rights, Chirula, the Filipino Workers Center, PWC, and the Instituto de Educación Popular del Sur de California, IDEPSCA. The panel, consisting of members of this organization, used the film, which Cuadón dedicated to his childhood nanny. Liboria Libo Rodriguez to speak about the what one speaker called the quote complex relationship between employers and employees in the global care work industry. In the style of Latin American Tercer Cine, they urged the audience to become accomplices to the struggles on display in the film. Roma is illustrative of this complex relationship between workers and employees in the market of commodified, commodified affective labor. It follows the life of Cleo, a timid indigenous woman from Oaxaca who moves to Mexico City in the late 70s to work as a live-in nanny in the home of a middle-class family. Cleo, it becomes clear as the film progresses, migrated to the city not entirely by choice but out of necessity. She's part of an indigenous Mexican population undergoing mass proletarianization as the government is liberalizing the economy. We learn that her family is being dispossessed of their land in spite of Mexico's relatively progressive constitution that protected communal lands. Now wage dependent and doubly free, free to sell her labor power and also free from the means of subsistence and production, Cleo must earn money to sustain her aging mother back at home. We see Cleo enjoy small moments of joy including gossiping with her friend Adela about, the employee, about their employers after they clock out of work, and she falls in and out of love on the weekends in what becomes a major plot point in the film. We learn she's a dutiful housekeeper nanny, even as she's scolded by Sofia, her employer, for not cleaning dog feces from the driveway to her husband's standards. But the clear delineation between her work duties and her personal or private affect that is, from affect as commodity and affect given as a labor of love becomes hazy during the climax of the film. Cleo, who tells Sofia earlier in the film that she doesn't know how to swim, runs with abandon into the violent ocean to rescue the two oldest children who are being swallowed by the current. Cleo is lovingly embraced by Sofia and the three children for her heroic feat, but in the following and final scene, Sofia uses the Spanish reflexive tense, casi se me ahogan, translated they almost drowned on me, which serves as a reminder of Cleo's profound alienation from the products of her labor, of her status as a proletariat in the literal sense, as a person who owns nothing but their own offspring. A central drama of this film is precisely this tension between affect as economic and affect as extra-economic. Take five deep breaths thinking about Cleo, said one speaker, Yermina thinking about the mothers that don't have the time to relax or bury their children, and for all the domestic workers who go to work with a headache, with all types of symptoms, but they go to, go to that job because they depend on it to survive. The breathing exercise is followed with a chant, Que viva Cleo, long live Cleo. Guillermina urged audiences to take the struggle of domestic workers on our shoulders and in our hearts by joining domestic worker organizers as they relaunch a campaign to win the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, legislation and as they unveil a new portable benefits app called Alia. So Alia, I think, is a case study in the evolving relationship between capital and care in 21st century advanced capitalist economies. Alia is designed and managed by the web dev wing of the National Domestic Workers Alliance called Fair Care Labs. As an NGO, the NDWA does not yield a profit from the app. However, through partnerships with Silicon Valley, Companies like Google, Thumbtrack, and Care.com, Alia raises important new questions about uh, commodified care work in the digital economy. In 2016, 
Google.org announced that Fork, it, it was going to be awarding a grant to Fork companies and nonprofits uh, from an earmarked $2 billion as part of an initiative to, quote, help prepare people for the future of work. Um, one of these being Aliyah at the Fairchild Labs. In a Silicon Valley uh, carrot and stick situation, Google is not immediately yielding profits from the Aliyah platform, but in its own words, it's investing in its ability to, quote, sustain economic growth. This move by the, the largest organization representing domestic workers in the country, 2.5 million, is a dangerous one as it normalizes the capture of their affects of laboring Latina bodies. 90% of domestic workers in the US are women and 50% of cleaners in the cleaning industry are Latina. Of data and of whatever other new avenues for growth um, the Silicon Valley deems important. This is especially uh, important as the Bureau of Labor Statistics note, notes that personal care aids and healthcare aids will be among the largest growing occupations in the coming years, in part due to the rapid rate of retirement of the baby boomer generation um, that's creating new opportunities for accumulation and the long downturn of manufacturing. It's also particularly important in the context of a kind of historic disavowal of the value of social reproductive labors, where Silicon Valley's invisible hand is poised to create new markets. On the other hand, this particular situation is a tragic outcome of historical processes um, in which the left is implicated to some degree. As one Aliyah um, developer told me, the partnership with Silicon Valley in the eyes of this NGO is a temporary solution to the problems of domestic worker exclusion via New Deal state policies um, and this thing called the companion exclusion. So the path to the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights has been far too slow and even difficult to enforce in states like New York City where, where legislation has passed. Um, and we should recall that it's not just the state, but it was mainstream labor also that colluded in this exclusion. It was not until 2013 and 2016 respectively that the AFL-CIO and the ILO uh, formally recognized domestic work as real work. And we should situate the emergence of this platform uh, and other digital platforms like it to mediate care within capitalism's long downturn, to quote um, Nick Cernicek, uh, author of Platform Capitalism. Cernicek argues that profitability in the manufacturing sector has been on the decline, which has led capital to seek new avenues for economic accumulation and growth to compensate for the sluggishness of what he calls the productive sector, uh, but I think is imprecise. I think he means the industrial or manufacturing sector. Mm -hmm. After all, services can be productive enterprises depending on whether or not they effectively valorize uh, capital. Um, I'm quoting Harry Braverman and, and Marx in the discussion of services. In this context, the digital economy defined as businesses that increasingly rely upon information technology, data, and the internet for their business models has become an uh, especially dynamic sector of the economy guiding economic growth. The capitalist mode of production demands that firms constantly seek out at these avenues for growth, profits, new markets, new commodities, and new means of exploitation to, com to remain competitive and uh, ensure the continuation of accumulation. Important to Cernicek's analysis uh, is about post-fortis patterns of accumulation is the Italian autonomous concept thesis of the general intellect. The general intellect thesis states that uh, collective cooperation and knowledge become a source of value. Cernicek observes how data and information have become uh, valuable raw materials for surplus extraction for platform capitalism, platform capital and advanced capital societies. Um, this is generally the context in which I want to uh, situate this question, but I depart from Cernicek and the Italian autonomous Marxist whose focus on accumulation is on data and knowledge. Instead, I want to place the emphasis on affect. Uh, in this paper, my focus is on the ways in which affect is a so-called raw material for extraction by platform capitalism. Thus, as the Italian autonomous Marxist theorized the knowledge worker as the cognitariat, the subject engendered by this capitalist tendency um, to capture value from the general intellect, I posit we might do well to think about modern care and domestic work as the kind of uh, worker as a kind of affect target. What I want to stress here most is the fact that this kind of uh, reality of the organic composition of capital is only part of the question, and that we as the left must wrestle to understand the contradiction at, at play between capital and care in the digital age. I think social reproduction theory has been especially useful as a political tool for reminding us about the extra-economic extra or indirectly market-mediated value of affect. 
um, and how this can ground a new communist horizon. As Rachel Brown reminds us, care work is historical and political. It is, quote, the effortful labor of care workers that links embodied lives to a history of emotional association with similarly raced and gendered bodies. And it is not only a site of unfreedom, but also a potential site of resistance. Aliyah demands that we uh, utilize this kind of affective, label, affective lens to critique uh, global care chain paradigms. Um, I think her critique of global care chain analysis is really useful here. Global care chains analysis states that women care workers mostly from the third world migrate to the first world in a global heart transplant where the emotional surplus value of poor women is extracted and accumulated by the recipients of care in the first world while the families of the poor workers are further impoverished. So I want, but I also want to think about this app as a site for the production of um, new political subjectivities and affects. So the name Alia is a reference to the word aliada, meaning ally in Spanish, but it got the Silicon Valley treatment. The Merriman-Webster Dictionary defines an ally as a person or group that provides assistance and support in an ongoing effort, activity, or struggle. Colloquially, the term ally uh, suggests a power differential, specifically a person who's not a member of a marginalized or mistreated group, but uh, who expresses or gives support to that group. From the Latin word aligare, meaning to bind, uh, it's a type of association that we might think of as a kind of post-war alternative to the word comrade. Aliyah is the first ever, am I talking about this app? What is it? It's the first ever portable benefits app designed to help millions of uh, domestic workers in the housekeeping industry access benefits like sick pay, medical insurance, and disability insurance. According to Faircare Labs, the development wing of the, uh, oh, sorry, the app's objective is to help people who hire domestic workers, quote, do the right thing. The NGO argues that many clients hiring domestic workers want to take care of the people who take care of their homes, but don't know how. Due to the informality of many, most labor contracts in this sector, a majority of domestic workers suffer from what's been called the benefits problem. Um, much like independent contractors who work for companies in the digital economy, characterized by lean production and flexible work arrangements or uberization, domestic worker contracts tend to uh, relieve employers, uh, never mind the state, uh, of any responsibility to their employees. This has led domestic worker organizers to claim that they are the original gig workers. The benefits are called portable in this case because workers accrue contributions from multiple sources that they can take uh, independently of client or employer. A letter of support from various uh, Silicon Valley CEOs and, and the president of SEIU for portable benefits uh, was signed in 2015. Um, I argue that Alia represents what Teresa Carrillo calls a comunidad in cyberspace, a digital space created by labor and popular movements to connect activists with different identities to address the negative impacts of globalization. Alia is a good example of how real life organizing and digital organizing overlap. In 2010, the National Domestic Workers Alliance launched a program called Hand in Hand. This network of domestic workers and, employee, and employers was forged in the trenches of the struggle to pass the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights in New York City. When the legislation passed, uh, a huge asset uh, was uh, the allyship of Jewish employers who had testified for domestic workers throughout the campaign. It be it's become a full-fledged NGO. It helped uh, employers recognize that their homes are workplaces and that they have legal obligations and opportunities to make their homes places they can be proud of. They argue many clients are themselves subjects of, uh, are themselves subjects of kind of neoliberal retreat and that they have to, uh, they're working women, seniors, and people with disabilities. Um, they say that hand-in-hand -hand members join because they want a sense of community and to be part of a movement with shared values. Um, uh, as an undergrad, I, I was able to hear some of the stories about these workshops where employers uh, in San Francisco were asked, when you feel uh, ill, do you expect your employer to pay you sick leave? And they would respond, yes, of course. Um, to which the workshop leaders would respond, well, we think domestic workers should have rights too. In many cases, they played uh, to the shared values of valuing women's paid work and life obligations. And Alia does this just in cyberspace. As Kira, the, one of the web developers, told me, um, she can now tell employers who want to be allies, now we have Alia, here's a concrete thing you can do, sign up for Alia.
Okay. Great. Um, so my name is Sarah Mason. I am a second year sociology PhD student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm also a Lyft driver and a door dasher. Um, I'm going to time myself just because I want to make sure I don't, don't go over. Okay. Um, okay, so before I begin, I just want to say thank you to the comrades um, at Notes From Below for putting together such a rad discussion. Um, as a platform-mediated worker and a researcher who studies platform-mediated work, uh, Notes From Below has really been an invaluable resource for me. And if you're interested in this form of labor and in the type of resistance that workers are engaging in, I highly suggest reading Jamie and Lydia's reports on the food platform worker strikes, uh, which took place last October in the UK, as well as the dispatches from the Transnational Courier Federation. Really important inquiries, I think, really great reporting, um, and really helpful in thinking about how to organize here. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about gamification as a managerial strategy, but before I do that, I wanna begin by saying a little bit about my own experience with this form of work. Um, I began studying platform-mediated work informally when I began driving for Lyft in May of 2016. I imagine that everyone here knows what Lyft is, but uh, very briefly, just in case, Lyft um, launched in 2012 as Zimride before changing its name a year later. It's a car service, a ride-hail service that is similar, if not identical, to Uber. It operates in about 300 U.S. cities, uh, and within the last year, it expanded to Canada. Um, recently, Lyft has received a lot of press coverage around its IPO, which debuted at $87 per share. Uh, Lyft is actually the first of what will be a series of gig economy public offerings this year, and its market valuation is actually higher than most legacy transportation companies. So think about, uh, you know, Hertz Rent-A-Car, Avis, American Airlines, United Airlines. It's insane. Um, so the IPO, which happened just a couple of weeks ago, also coincided with some of the largest coordinated driver actions in the United States to date. Um, for instance, a protest that took place outside of a meeting of initial investors at the Omni Hotel in San Francisco was actually successfully disrupted um, and was forced to be moved elsewhere. Uh, interestingly, in typical Silicon Valley fashion, the company made the decision to go public despite its inability to, to turn a profit, uh, despite its ability to turn a profit. Um, and really, no one sees any problem with this, um, at least from the company's standpoint. In its filings uh, with the Securities and Exchange Commission, after reporting a net loss of $911 million just last year, the company said, quote, we have a history of net losses, and we actually may never be able to achieve or maintain profitability in the future." <laughs> End quote. So what this means for drivers is an open question. I think um, when it comes up in conversation, it sort of looms over us uh, like the specter of kind of driverless or autonomous vehicles, which is to say it's a concern, but it's not necessarily an urgent or immediate one. Um, so I made the decision to drive like many people because I couldn't find another job. Um, I had left my last place of employment for health reasons and when I was able to start working again, I was completely unprepared for how difficult it would be to actually find stable employment. My experience is not at all uncommon and talking with other drivers has really confirmed this. Uh, for many of us, Uber and Lyft provides what is now somewhat popularly being referred to as a quote, bridge income. Um, the idea being reflected here is that gig work can sort of fill in the gap or the transition between periods of more traditional employment. I think this is important because uh, it can truly be a relief for many workers who sort of find themselves subject to the whims of a precarious labor market. And you hear a lot of drivers talk about it in this way as being a sort of lifesaver. Um, obviously, I think this says more about the complete lack of social safety net or welfare protections that workers have in the United States than it does about the supposed virtues of the company. But I think it's important to understand that not all workers are thinking about it in this way. Um, there's a, a real emotional identification with this company as like helping me. Um, so people feel very grateful for the type of work that is offered through applications like Lyft and Uber. 
Um, providing a bridge income is, sub is somewhat different, though related to the other major function that this work fulfills, which is as a source of supplemental income for individuals who are already employed full-time or who are working consistently uh, in other positions part-time. Um, both types of arrangements are common for ride hail, hail workers. In fact, when I began driving, I used Lyft as a bridge income. Now that I'm a graduate student and I am primarily earning an income as a research assistant, I use Lyft and increasingly DoorDash as a source of supplemental income. Um, at the time that I began driving, Lyft was advertising a $500 sign-up bonus for new drivers in Los Angeles who could complete 75 rides within their first 60 days. I was very much lured in by this bonus, um, and like many other drivers, I made a simple calculation, which was that I had a car and I needed money. Um, I should note that these sign-up bonuses vary across markets, by day, by week, even by individual, depending on what Lyft thinks it needs, what the projected demand looks like, what attrition patterns they're detecting, like Uber, Lyft has a huge problem with churn and turnover, um, and also with, uh, with, it varies with what Lyft predicts potential drivers will accept. The sign-up process was incredibly easy, and I think this is a major uh, appeal of this form of work, at least initially. Um, looking for work itself is an extremely labor-intensive process. Before I began driving for Lyft, I was spending several hours per week filling out applications, reformatting my resume, writing and rewriting cover letters, following up on potential leads, borderline harassing friends who maybe knew something about an opening somewhere, and of course scouring the job search aggregators like Indeed or Simply Hired. Um, the work of looking for work is an exhausting activity and it's insanely time consuming. So there was something instantly gratifying about signing up to drive. The on-demandness of it was a welcome relief to what felt like a never-ending hellscape of applications permanently suspended in status pending. Um, it took me roughly three days between filling out the online application to having my vehicle inspected to receiving my sticky pink lift emblems before I was able to complete my first ride. It was seamless or frictionless, as they say in Silicon Valley. I could begin working almost immediately, no cover letter, no low-level manager to impress at an in-person interview for a minimum wage position, no waiting. It's really insane, like, the amount of labor you have to do to get, like, a minimum wage job. Um, I think that's sort of really a big part of what, why people are drawn to this, to this work. Um, the uncertainty and long unpaid periods of waiting, of course, comes later when you will spend hours waiting for a ping when the app is essentially dead, either oversaturated with other drivers or ridership as well. The low barriers to entry coupled with the ease of the sign-up process is absolutely an appeal for drivers, and this is especially true given the hostile labor market in which many of us begin seeking out this work. And when I say low barriers to entry, I mean basically you need a clean driving record, a smartphone, and a car. Um, of course, the flip side of this is that in the same way that you can be instantly activated, you can also be instantly deactivated. Um, and next to rate cuts, the issues of deactivation without any recourse has been a primary catalyst for driver organizing. Gig Workers Rising, which is a network of platform-mediated workers up in the Bay Area, has had some marginal success in organizing drivers around the issue of deactivation without warning, though their actions have only managed to draw a few dozen participants. Of course, this is not for any lack of effort on their part. Organizing ride hail workers is proving to be an extremely difficult, though hopefully not impossible, task. Um, and this is for reasons that you can probably imagine. I mean, it's a very dispersed and disaggregated workforce. Uh, people work inconsistently and are isolated by their vehicles. I was actually talking to someone um, in London at the last HM conference about why they thought delivery drivers were able to organize a strike action there. And they hypothesized um, that it was in part because of the use of scooters. They thought scooters had something to do with it. And they basically said it's because drivers can very easily talk to one another in the streets. Um, and when they're pulled over sort of in waiting areas, they don't have like the sort of structural isolation of a vehicle. And I actually thought this was very compelling. Like I've been in a number of situations where I've been in, you know, cell phone waiting lots outside of airports and drivers, you know, sort of are very, very much in their vehicles, isolated um, from one another. Uh, some sort of comparative study I think would be very fascinating, but um, this is another project. 
So, um, of course, the hostile labor market, I think, is only one, perhaps, purely economic force that is shaping the context in which drivers seek out and perform this work. Uh, there seems to be another, maybe more insidious cultural force that we have to contend with in order to understand the appeal and resonance that platform-mediated work finds among a growing swath of workers. Um, this cultural force, I would argue, is something that one regularly pushes up against in trying to organize other rideshare workers. And I'm talking, of course, about neoliberalism, or what we can broadly call neoliberal subjectivity. In her book, Neoliberal Culture, Patricia Ventura argues that neoliberalism is a set of practices, techniques, and rationalities that govern individual behavior and attitudes. Under the cultural logic of neoliberalism, one's well-being is tied to their ability to make market principles the guiding value of their lives, to see themselves as products to create, sell, and optimize. She summarizes it like this, quote, neoliberal culture as a structure of feeling impels us to extend the market, its technologies, approaches, and mindsets into all spheres of human life, to the ideology of consumer choice, to the center of individual existence. Indeed, to define success and failure in market terms. In short, it is to become entrepreneurs of ourselves. Notions of entrepreneurial freedom, autonomy, choice, and self-determination really permeate discussions of platform-mediated work. And this is true for both workers and CEOs alike. Workers have, in many ways, I think, internalized the libertarian ethos of the Californian ideology. They think of themselves as Uber and Lyft prefer they do as entrepreneurs, as small business owners, and hustlers. The marketing strategy of ride-hail companies is very sophisticated in this sense. Rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft position themselves in opposition to the monotonous and often constraining rhythms of nine-to-five employment, or shift work. Uh, this is most clearly evidenced by marketing campaigns that implore would-be drivers to be your own boss and set your own schedule, which continues to be a huge draw for new drivers. I would argue that this poses an interesting challenge for organizers, since Lyft and Uber have essentially been able to capitalize on a strand of anti-work sentiment that the contemporary labor market has abandoned in its defensive position. While the contemporary labor, labor movement now fights for a longer working day and full-time employment, and for good reason, given the circumstances, um, the figure of the entrepreneur promises us that we can simply work smarter, not harder, or longer. And in this way, it's appealing. The figure of the entrepreneur has gained a strange resonance uh, and prominence in a neoliberal era marked by economic instability and mass precarity. Historically, the title of the entrepreneur was, was reserved for wealthy speculators, tycoons, and business magnates, risk takers who self-organized business ventures, assuming all risks and rewards. Today, the entrepreneur is anyone and everyone, from the Elote Man to Elon Musk. There's really no distinction. As Brooke Aaron Duffy points out in her excellent book, Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work, self-enterprise and entrepreneurship is now the leading career choice among the majority of young adults. A recent study cited in her work showed that 67% of, of young people ages 18 to 34 report wanting to start their own business or work independently, versus 30% of those who aspire for more traditional employment. Such statistics seem to reflect the dominant cultural attitudes, aspirations, and sensibilities of a, pop of a population formed by neoliberalism. Of course, uh, no, sorry. Um, in his newest book, Psychopolitics, German philosopher Byung Chung Han similarly writes, quote, neoliberalism transforms workers into entrepreneurs. Today, everyone is an auto-exploiting laborer in his or her own enterprise. People are now master and slave in one. Even class struggle has transformed into an inner struggle against oneself. Hans' insight is made apparent in forums for rideshare drivers where workers will blame someone else's poor work ethic and lack of skill for low earnings just as commonly as they will blame the algorithm or ride-hail companies themselves. Uh, the, neoliberal, uh, the neoliberal tendency towards responsabilization places an extreme amount of pressure on the worker who feels that only they are to blame for failing to master the skills that would allow them to reap the material rewards promised by these platforms. And this is something that is reproduced in the gamification techniques that are employed by Lyft and Uber. In a very basic sense, gamification is the use of game elements, point scoring, levels, competition with others, measurable evidence of accomplishments, ratings, and rules of play in non-game contexts. 
Games deliver an instantaneous, visceral experience of success and reward, and they are increasingly used in the workplace uh, to promote emotional engagement with the work process and to increase workers' psychological investment in completing otherwise uninspiring tasks. Target, the U.S. retail giant, um, actually reports that gamifying its in-store checkout process has resulted in lower customer wait times and shorter lines. Um, has anyone heard of the cashier game? Uh, so during checkout, a cashier's screen will flash green if items are scanned at an optimum rate. Um, if the cashier goes too slowly, the screen will flash red. These scores are logged and cashiers are expected to maintain an 88% green rating. Um, also, a few months ago, there was, wow, I feel like, do you know when you study this stuff, you're like, everybody knows this. <laughs> okay, great. Um, there was also this article uh, a few months ago that was printed in Fast Company that talked about um, the Disneyland Hotel's laundry productivity tracking system. So the number of sheets, towels, and comforters that workers wash, dry, and fold are electronically monitored and displayed on large scoreboards throughout the laundry facility. Um, production targets are changing constantly and workers' names light up in green, red, or yellow to reflect whether or not they're keeping up with their goals. If workers fall behind, their laundry machine flashes at them. Uh, a union organizer at Unite Here Local 11 said that workers are actually referring to this as an, as an electronic whip. Um, workers, I, I think this is interesting because um, this, you know, workers sort of uh, resistance to this, I think is very much the result of this being introduced into like an already existing uh, labor process. Um, whereas with, you know, in the world of rideshare work, this is something that's, that's always existed that you encounter from the first day of signing up. Um, and, and in the world of ride hail work, where almost the entirety of your activity, which is like prompted and guided by screen, um, where everything can be measured, logged, and analyzed, there are really very few limitations as, uh, you know, on what can be gamified. And Lyft and Uber does this in a variety of ways through the uses of things like power driver bonuses, quests, power zones, um, and various challenges that require you to hone your knowledge and skill to meet a just difficult enough quota. Um, the consequences of this are very interesting. On the one hand, it presents new challenges for the ways that workers are psychologically attached to their work and the way in which power in the workplace is understood. Uh, when work takes the form of a game, it can mean turning, the soul -crushing, turning a soul-crushing job into an exciting outlet for workers to exercise their creativity, speed, and skill. Drivers attach notions of status and prestige to their output. Um, additionally, the games that they play present them with a series of choices throughout the day, which affords them with a sense of, of relative autonomy and control. It, it really taps into workers' desire for self-determination and self-expression, and then it takes that and sort of directs it into the production of surplus value. Um, it also disperses tensions away from the boss and away from the algorithm and sort of directs them towards the inevitable obstacles that one encounters when you're playing the game. Um, I'm running over on time, so I'm just going to read this very quickly. Um, so in an article that I, that I wrote for Logic Magazine, I talk a lot about how Lyft and Uber actually employ um, captologists and behavioral scientists and video game designers who um, are, are well aware that tasks are very likely to be completed faster and with greater enthusiasm if one can sort of visualize them as part of a progression towards a, towards a larger pre-established goal. Um, the Lyft stat meter is something that's always present when you're driving. It's always showing you what your acceptance rating is, how many rides you've completed, how many rides you have left to complete, really how long you have until you um, complete your goal. Uh, Ridehill companies have also adopted some of the same design elements used by gambling firms to, pr to promote addictive behavior among slot machine users. One of the things that anthropologist and NYU Media Studies professor, professor Natasha Dow Scholl found during a decade-long study of machine gambling, gambling uh, users in Las Vegas is that casinos use network-style style slot machines to allow them to surveil, track, and analyze behavior of individual gamblers in real time. And this is the same thing that ride-hailing apps do. They want to triangulate any given worker's data, They want to, and then use it to sort of piece together a profile so that they can customize game offerings that they think will specifically entice that individual worker. 
I think uh, one of the things that gamification does is that it, it merges effortlessly with the sort of grind culture that emanates from the core of Silicon Valley and has really come to dominate our neoliberal, uh, neoliberal landscape where work is play and play is work, where some of the most precarious laborers are seen as hustlers and bosses. Um, as Fred Turner and others have rightly observed, Silicon Valley's product is not simply technology. Yes, Silicon Valley produces technology, but perhaps more importantly, Silicon Valley's most insidious product is really a culture and an ideology that increasingly tints and tinges even the most mundane aspects of our everyday lives. Um, and I guess ultimately my question is, and this is something that I'm still thinking about and is very much what my research is about, um, is what is it about us, inside of us, that is receptive to and even relishes in this particular form of exploitation? Um, why in online forums or in cell phone waiting lots do drivers implore one another to hashtag hustle harder or hashtag rise and grind rather than say hashtag behead the CEO? <laughs> to answer this question I think requires us to look seriously at neoliberal subjectivity alongside of course the very important political, social, economic and technical factors that we encounter in our day-to-day -day working lives. Thank you both so much for your perspectives. Um, and so we've just heard about kind of the experience of working for tech platforms and what it's like to be the product of decisions made by people who design technology. And so now we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about what it's like to actually build technology platforms of sort that shape our lives. And so here we have today, we have um, Jason and JS who will be talking about their experience, uh, which are kind of similar in some ways, but different in other ways as well, about being you know, software engineers working on platforms that have, have really changed the way work works today and just the way society works. And so I'm gonna start you guys off by some questions about, first of all, what, what does it mean to be someone working you know, on a tech platform? What, what is a tech worker? Um, how should we think about this? Why does it matter if, say, tech workers organize and unionize or in some other way assert control over the products that they build? How does it tie into what we were talking about before and just like larger questions that the left has around what we need, how we need to democratize, you know, control over our, our world. So, big um, questions. But. Sure, I can, I can start. Um, so, hi everyone, my name is Jason Prado. Uh, I've been a full-time software engineer at very large tech companies for the past 11 years. Um, currently work at a large tech company, and for the past two and a half years, I've also been a volunteer and organizer with the Tech Workers Coalition, um, which wow. is a, uh, a organization of tech workers um, with the broad goal of building worker power in the tech industry. Um, to build a more democratic, people-friendly tech industry. Um, so first off, like, why does tech matter? Um, why are workers organizing? What is a tech worker? Those are kind of some like basic definitions we like to get uh, out of the way first, because even the definition of a worker is, of course, like always pol political, always something to contest. Um, so first off, tech is a strategic industry. It is the, one of the most important industries on the planet right now. Um, we all spend several hours a day on our phones, and the, the war over which, uh, which platforms and which advertisers get your eyeballs for those hours a day is um, hugely contested, right? That is um, the matter of billions of dollars uh, for advertisers and these tech platforms. Um, and then from there, tech branches out to affect every aspect of our lives. Um, so we just heard about how Lyft and Uber changed the labor relationship um, between a worker and their, their boss, which has become an app. Um, obviously, it has affected our democracy greatly. Um, so if you look at YouTube, um, prominent right-wing uh, media is surfaced on YouTube to a degree that we're all terrified of, but I don't think we even have an understanding yet of what the effects are and how, how pervasive this is. Um, it's worth knowing that uh, the top outgoing link on Facebook every single day is BenShapiro.com, and most of the other top 10 outgoing links are also right-wing websites <coughs> and uh, right-wing uh, celebrities. Um, <clears throat> so who has control of this? Why is it like this? Is this what we want? Um, definitely not workers. Uh, as a tech worker, uh, even a senior tech worker like myself, I have very little control over what the platforms we build do. Um, <clears throat> you know, tech workers are handed down, here's a metric you need to optimize. That metric is always obscuring at least like one degree away revenue, right? Because that's, that's what capital does. It needs profit. It has to seek returns. Um, so we have different ways of looking at that. That might be, you know, how many searches are performed by Google, uh, click-through rate on ads, um, time spent being the most insidious. That is, um, finally, we're seeing like maybe the decline of time spent as the main metric um, because it's gotten a bad rap uh, with like 
even liberals getting behind like the time well spent movement and finally realizing that uh, you know, if television had the main metric uh, time spent viewing, that would be horrible. And of course, it like ultimately does because that translates to ad revenue. But it's very obvious like time spent is not a good metric for for television. We don't need to watch more, watching more TV does not make us happier, add value to our lives. It turns out that technology is the same. Um, so who does make these decisions? Shareholders um, and owners pushing down metrics that will drive revenue. Of course, um, not tech workers. Um, which brings us to who is a tech worker who should have control over this, this industry. Um, something that Tech Workers Coalition uh, has had some success in, in pushing into the, the conversation is that the, tech worker, the definition of tech worker needs to be as broad as possible. Um, so that means software engineers, obviously. And when you think of a tech worker, you're probably thinking of someone like me who is well paid and a software engineer and went to Stanford. That's, that's like the image in our head. That's not even most people who work at these uh, high, high profile tech companies. Um, you know, most people who work at Google are not even employees of Google now, they're contractors. Um, like it's maybe between 50 and 70% of workers on Google campuses are contingent workers, we can talk more about that later. Um, Microsoft, all the top five big companies, uh, probably the same, and that trend is accelerating. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we need to include contract workers, certainly into who is a tech worker. Um, but then really, there's these massive tech campuses are, you know, they're, they're large institutions, they're operated by people who cook food, who um, drive buses, um, who uh, act in the service of the tech industry's goals. So we need to start thinking about bus drivers as tech workers. Um, then there's, of course, people who use technology and build technology in other industries, whether that's banking and finance or people building, um, you know, really like technology is, we're all tech workers in some way, right? Because everyone who uses a computer who um, wants to automate more of their work or whose work has been automated by technology, um, you know, can be, is a stakeholder in, in tech. Um, so we've tried to expand that definition as broadly as possible and uh, then from there you could say like, well, what do we have in common if we're all tech workers? Does it make sense for us to organize together? Um, yeah, so I can leave it there for now. We can come back to it. Cool. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm JS. I work at Microsoft. Um, specifically, I work on um, cloud computing technology. Um, and, and I do want to come back to some of the stuff you're saying with regards to why it's important for um, tech to be organized. Um, but yeah, I think I want to start kind of relating back to some of what you were talking about, Sarah, in terms of um, the entrepreneurialism of the self and, um, and, and actually some of the mechanisms that, that happen within the tech company that, that are used to, to sort of do the same to tech workers. Um, yeah, so I think one of, the, one of the problems, and maybe this conversation is shifting a little bit um, as of the past year and a half or, or several years, um, but this question of, of tech workers thinking of themselves as workers. Um, so it's easy to think of income as income and, and working conditions as, as an indicator for this. Um, so if you're making a six-figure salary and, you know, if you're playing ping pong after lunch or whatever, right, um, you, pro you probably don't think of yourself as part of the working class. Um, and tech workers are led to believe that they too can, you know, can, can become the next big hotshot entrepreneur. Um, it's you know it's it starts at the university level where you know most most computer science programs have some kind of entrepreneurship class. I know it's definitely a huge thing in Stanford, mm. um, and almost every major university now hosts their own you know annual hackathon where students are encouraged to like come up with some really great idea and essentially get in front of a panel of judges and and pitch this idea kind of like a, a founder pitching it to pitching their idea to to get funding. Um, and, e and even in the office, and even at, at the office, at the offices where people work, um, this kind of this kind of entrepreneurship is still is is, is still encouraged. Um, engineers are, are often asked to take ownership of projects or to to, to sort of be the driver for certain features. And I'm, I'm sure you've experienced that kind of um, language. Um, and you know that actually feeds into this idea that you know they that you too can become you know. This, the CEO, founder, person that, that you know you were taught to want to be. Um, I think another an, another interesting thing, just kind of in terms of the language that that is used a lot in tech companies, um, is that you, for some reason family family keeps coming up in, in, in tech. You know, like you, your team is your family, your project is your baby, and you know obviously you have to be like constantly, you know. Feeding your baby or whatever, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and, and, and it's dangerous because you know all of a sudden you're 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 in you're in the office and um, 
it's like 10 p.m. and you know you're working hard, but it, it's all okay because you know, you're just spending time with family. Um, <laughs> so I, I think this kind of leads to to um, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is which is more specifically around the kind of control um, that tech companies have over over tech workers. Um, and I want to I want to I want to relate this to to, to something that that's happening in China right now, which is um, the 996 ICU movement, um, which is a movement where more than 200,000 tech workers in China um, have, have sort of stood behind it, um, and it's it's essentially a fight against the grueling work hours that tech companies um, that tech companies tend to enforce in in China. So the movement's called 996 ICU. 996 represents the the hours, so 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Um, ICU is intensive care unit. It's kind of you know satire. You work that long, you'll end up in intensive care unit. Um, and I, you know, just 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 within my my own office and 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 seeing online, I've seen just comments or um, you know people talk about how outrageous this is. Like you know, the 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 labor practices in China are horrible, and you know it's inhumane. And and, and yeah, it is. Um, it's absolutely true. Um, but the thing is that like you know it's kind of that kind of control also happens here in the US to a large extent in tech. Um, and and you know this this entrepreneurialism of the self is is a large driving force in that. You know, at Microsoft we're told that we need to, you know, like I said, take ownership of projects. Um, if you're a level one manager, so someone who's like probably not too different from us, um, or from myself to speak for myself. Um, you know, you, you might be asked to treat your team or your product as kind of a mini startup, and, and you're you're really there to, you know, sort of be like this mini CEO and, 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 and drive this product to uh, success. Um, and and um, pretty pretty much everyone at my company at Microsoft um, has kind of heard the mantra of like being customer obsessed, um, and and I certainly was in my on my old team. Um, where for months on end I was I was like obsessed. I was obsessed with my work. I was, um, you know, I was constantly working. Like my 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 work was my baby. Like whenever it was like crying or or, or, or pooping or whatever, I was out there. Um, like instantly fixing its bugs, fixing documentation, responding, like helping helping customers. Maybe they're in Japan, so the time zone totally off. Uh, helping customers uh, on board to, to this product. Um, and, and yeah, I, I was so invested in the success of, of, of this, this thing I was building. Um, and the thing is, when you ask most managers at my company whether or not they care about the hours, whether or not, you know, oh, can I work from home or um, leave early because I've got an appointment or whatever, like pretty much most managers will say, no, you know, I don't care. Um, and instead, what they, what they, what they talk about, um, what my current manager currently talks about is, is, uh, is work-life harmony, right? This, um, you know, complete like melding together of work and life, and and the result is is, I think, actually quite similar to what we have in in China with nine and six. Mm. Um, I, I I certainly was working um, those hours for a while in my, in my old team, um, and and I would say really the main difference is is one is controlled by a, a fixed schedule, and and the other is controlled by kind of this. This thing that you're talking about, the California ideology um, and the entrepreneurialism of itself. So, just to pick up on that, you mentioned something about family, which I think is a really important point because it kind of goes back to what you were saying about gamification and having this um, system or metric in place that obscures the actual relations. And so, you know, if, if you're part of a family, you're not working to make profit, like you're not guided by that. And so that's maybe what you're ultimately doing, but you as a worker have like a different sort of framework to see things and you can feel better about yourself and you're mo more motivated to work on something if you're doing it not because you're trying to make your shareholders rich, because like that's not motivating for anyone, but because you want to make something cool with your friends, people you care about, right? And I guess, you know, if you're if you're working on like a product where it, it feels like it's, uh, it's really important to the company or it's like really new and really cool, you're not just doing it, you don't think of it as like a job in the same way, right? It's, um, it's also, there's an element of like being with other people, like in the trenches almost, right? Like you're in a wartime scenario, it's like you, you're in the trenches together, you don't, you're not there because you're trying to defeat the enemy, you're there because you're trying to save your buddy, right? And so I, I feel like that is like one really crucial challenge to getting tech workers to see themselves as workers in that sense, because you know, like they're, 
they're they're fighting like they they feel like they're in a situation that is um in a way they can't really get out of it because it's you know it's them versus the world oh. and as a result how do they get so they're like identifying with the company rather right. than you know with fellow workers so then i guess like what are other what are the challenges really to getting tech workers to see themselves as workers distinct from you know owners as, as like a very very separate sort of dimension uh, right. Um, so the battlefield analogy, where you're you're not fighting for the, the noble cause that you went to war for, you're fighting to keep your buddy safe next to you. It's uh, maybe uh, bigger in a metaphor than needed for just tech work, but at the same time, like that's that is what is motivating at the end of the day, right? Like I'm not, I don't care about the sharehold, the share price, um, even if I'm given a stock grant. It's it's like basically nothing compared to the owners. Um, what it is is you, uh, if I don't get my work done, I'm blocking the person next to me from getting their work done, which means they'll get a bad review that I'm responsible for suddenly, and or they have goals of their own that you know, I don't want to get in the way of. Um, and that's not to say this is completely a bad thing. I mean, I, I, I want a job where I work hard and feel invested and create something cool for people I care about. That is like, we all deserve jobs like that, actually. Um, the, the problem is when it, it's just in the service of profit or time spent or advertisers, um, and we have no say in how work is done. Um, so I think uh, teasing those apart, where like, you know, you're, if you're a young person, you, you're hungry, you're an entrepreneur of the self or whatever, so you move to the Bay Area and you work in these Silicon Valley companies, and the impact, the, you know, the, the posters on the wall of these companies talk about the impact, and, and the posters on my company literally say, uh, we don't build services to make money, we make money to build services, and we just accidentally make $9 billion a quarter in profits. <laughs> um, or, you know, another way that they encourage us to look at it is really we're, we're serving our users. Like, we, you would, especially at Stanford, you would maybe uh, be forgiven for thinking that we work in the charity industry and uh, that we just get paid well because we're special. Um, and that's, that's really just, like, nailed in from, from school through... Uh, I work in an especially cult-like company, for sure, right now, but um, I think it's very standard across, across Silicon Valley. Um, so breaking those apart, like, where you... Um, want to work hard, you want to contribute, you want to have impact, but also there are these parasitic shareholders who are guiding this process and extracting value from you and your users um, sucks. And like getting people to see that those are the two parts of it is, I think, our main challenge. Um, and like this is reinforced by you know people identifying with the company, wearing startup T-shirts to establish their identity. Um, uh, and then, like, there's a you know a, a very cynical way to look at the high wages and good benefits uh, allocated to tech workers to the high wage tech workers um, would be to say that this is like a bribe for upholding the system, right? That's a, one way that people can look at wages. Um, <clears throat> so it's you know very hard to say to someone who is making six figures uh, or even high six figures like, hey, the system's working super well for you. Um, it certainly worked well for me. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I, because of the tech industry, I'm like in a completely different social class than my parents. Um, and for a long time, that uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I was like, oh, this works so well for me. It must just be a good industry. It must be super fair. The, the meritocracy is, must must be working. Um, <clears throat> and it takes time to really like remove somebody from that way of um, of thinking about it. Uh, and then you know, on top of that, I think Silicon Valley gets a rap for everyone being a libertarian or something, and that's. Like, I think that's really overstated. Um, I think that there are um, strong, like, market orthodoxy, like, currents in, like, one narrow tier of the tech industry among, like, one certain kind of programmer, white male programmer, who might be, like, more prominent and visible. But that's definitely a, I mean, most people in the tech industry aren't even engineers. Most engineers aren't, uh, you know, free market libertarians. Um, they've somehow gotten a lot more attention than everyone else. But uh, I want to just, like, dispel that myth. I don't, I don't think it's as, um, prevalent as, as it seemed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I want to kind of talk about what, or uh, your question in, in kind of perspective of how, how, do, how can tech workers start to, you know, have, develop this class consciousness and, and build solidarity with each other. Um, and kind of coming, coming from it, first we're talking about what some of the challenges are in doing that and, and what I think are some of the opportunities um, so, in, yeah, in terms of challenges, I mean, I think there are a couple of kind of, there are a couple of obvious ones, like the fact that a lot of tech workers um, are, are in extremely vulnerable positions. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, contract workers, people who are on visa. Um, so that, that, that's, that's, that's an obvious one. I, I think another one is that the average engineer tenure tends to be pretty, pretty short. Um, and kind of like, like you guys are saying, that there's this, this belief that engineers 
are really doing the good work and, and working for a good company. Um, in, in my experience, one of the things that I've seen a lot, um, and kind of speaking specifically about Microsoft, is that Microsoft really does try to make people believe that they've built a system that, that is meritocratic, that, that you know, if, you are, if you are smart and you know, if you work hard, um, you'll succeed. Um, so in the past, Microsoft used to, Microsoft managers used to stack rank their employees, um, and, that, and that, that was kind of the mechanism to decide who got promoted and who got fired. Right, so on a team of five engineers, you may have, um, yeah, on a team of five engineers, um, the engineers would be stack ranked one to five, um, you know, those numbers representing uh, how, they, how they performed and compared with, with the rest of the team. One will be promoted and, and fives will be fired. Um, and like, you know, if we kind of relate this back to like the family thing, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kid didn't have a hot report card. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the family. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and, and I, I think kind of across the industry, um, this idea that like, you know, your, your promoter or your, your bonus is, is, is super closely tied to your, your individual contribution is, is definitely a thing. Um, and, and I think that this is actually part of the strategy that they have when, when they've designed, when, when, you know, the bosses are designing the system that, you know, if, if you constantly hold workers against each other, uh, in, in, in competition against each other, um, it's going to be hard to build solidarity, right? If, you, if, you, if you're being stack ranked, um, one to five with your immediate coworkers, the people who you should be building solidarity with. Um, you know, in that in that scenario, one engineer's success is directly tied to the failure of another. And so, like, how can you have how how can you have any solidarity when there's this kind of competition? Um, but I don't think it's all it's all horrible. I think there are some some interesting opportunities um, that have come up in the past few years. Um, Specifically around kind of the actions that that have, that have happened um, with Google, with, with most recently Amazon, and, and, and a little bit, and, and some other companies as well. Um, and, I, and I kind of see it as, in my mind, I kind of categorize it in two categories. Um, so you have you have contract workers or, or cafeteria workers, the people who drive the buses, um, and and their struggle is is quite clear. It's, it's around it's around working conditions, it's around pay and benefits. Um, and, and I think there's, there's this other category of FTEs, employees, full-time full employees, um, people who get paid six figures. Um, and an interesting opportunity that, that I think has, has kind of come up is around the topic of ethics. I think that provides a very interesting in for, for tech workers who do believe that they are doing good in the world, who, who do want to do good in the world, um, to, to kind of enter the conversation and, and, start, and start realizing that you know, companies are ultimately there to profit, and, and that their that their that their interests are, are are fundamentally different from those of their bosses. But financially, they're incentivized completely differently, right? We're, like my 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 compensation is is like more or less fixed. I get a bonus, and maybe that somewhat relates to the the, 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 the Microsoft stock price. But you know, my CVP, his compensation is is nearly completely tied to, to how well the com company is doing. And so he has much more incentive to say, oh yeah, I, I want to go work with ICE and, and make that mm -hmm. you know, half billion dollar contract happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and ethics becomes just, you know, it's not something that's really on his mind anymore. So yeah, I, I think in terms of the opportunities that are coming up, you know, as, as, as tech continues to you know, mess up the environment, military contracts, all these, as, as these come up, I think that this is an opportunity for tech workers, um, FTE workers specifically, to, to kind of enter the conversation and, and start building solidarity, start building um, a collective voice. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's a good point. I think um, on the opportunity side, you mentioned uh, tech companies moving towards more of contract workforces. Mm -hmm. Do you, could you talk more about that? Like, why is that happening? And could that be some sort of opportunity as well for organizers? Right. Um, yeah, so uh, again, Google got the most press for this, but every top company is doing the same, where like uh, roles that used to be full-time employee are now shifting towards contingent or TBC, temp vendor contractor, as they refer to it as Google, at Google. Um, and these are roles where um, <clears throat> like a company will hire a staffing agency like Accenture, Motivate, a few other like very large ones. 
um, to then stuff like a, a particular role or a particular function. Um, <clears throat> and these roles are, come with much lower wages um, and definitely like no benefits. Usually, it's like when you talk to these workers, the, the thing they're most agitated about is you know healthcare, um, especially in America, of course. Um, so, family health insurance might cost you know a thousand, twelve hundred dollars a month. Um, so, you know, technically, I think employers are in some way required to offer these benefits to full-time employees, but in practice, nobody ever signs up for them. Um, and maybe they make low enough wages that they get Medicaid or Cal covered California or something, but but maybe not. Um, so why? I mean, you could take a guess that this is about um, cutting costs, right? You know, a contract worker that is going to cost less because you don't have to pay their benefits. Um, that's kind of an obvious one. A slightly less obvious one that I think is maybe even more important is um, the flexibility to hire and fire people very dynamically. Um, because if you look at uh, the, the rate Accenture gets per hour for a worker, um, they take like a 30 to 60% cut of that worker's wages. Um, maybe for their administration, but mostly you know, the Accenture stock price has just been up and to the right since tech started doing this. Um, up and to the right is a phrase we use a lot in tech, of course, about the graph, up and to the right. Um, so uh, why would, why would uh, Google be happy to hire a contractor as opposed to a full-time employee? Well, if um, like, uh, every corporate CEO is very incentivized, uh, especially for the past like, few decades, um, to never have a bad quarter. If you have a bad quarter, your stock price tumbles. Um, so you have, you have to build all these like, moats around your stock price. Um, so a moat around the, like having a bad quarter is like, well, if you're going to have a bad quarter, you just like quietly lay off a bunch of contractors. It doesn't make the news, so it doesn't seem like you're laying people off. Um, and you just don't renew some contracts, or you just like tell people not to come back tomorrow, and um, <clears throat> and like your cuts, your costs are cut um, as well. Contractors are like viewed as kind of a fixed price on the balance sheet, um, as even if the people are perma temps, which um, means that they're hired on renewed contracts over and over again. There's lots of ways people get around regulations against perma temps, like in Washington and California, um, workers are shuffled between different vendors to to like make it look like they're not perma temps. Um, but you know, compared to like an investor looks at the balance sheet and sees all these employees, well, that's a recurring cost. And if you wanted to get rid of them, they might sue you, um, or and then you might get some bad press for it. Um, so, but that's not the story we're told internally. Of course, um, the internal story is like, well, we have to hire these people as contractors because they don't work in a core competency, or we need to scale so fast that we don't have the expertise in, in HR to do that, and only like Accenture and these other companies do. Um, the euphemism that has lately taken hold for this is scaled operations. Um, so are some of these roles, you could argue, are not core, like bus drivers, maybe a tech company should outsource bus driving, that might be more efficient. Um, but then what about roles that really are core? Um, so. Social media companies have been in the news for um, needing better content moderation around terror groups, uh, hate groups, um, violence on their platforms. Um, so they've hired tens of thousands of content moderators on contract through companies like Accenture. Um, <clears throat> so one way I've been like kind of jokingly looking at this lately is like, if you look at Facebook, uh, are they a tech company or is their main product a community? It, they would tell you that their main product is building community. So if you look at it that way, maybe the, the people who are full-time employees of Facebook should be content moderators and community managers who occasionally hire software engineers on contract to like improve their tools and services, but it doesn't seem to work this way. So what is it really about as opposed to a core competency? It's really about labor power and the labor market, of course. Um, so if you're in a, a high uh, in-demand role like a, a software engineer, then you get a cushy full-time offer. If you're somebody who could be replaced more easily because like we, there are um, not enough jobs in a region and too many uh, labor surplus, then you end up in a contract role like a content moderator. Anything else to add? Should I open it up? Um, yeah, I think I'm just gonna ask you guys like one last question and then we'll open it up. Um, just like kind of a broader one, so feel free to just be as, as vague as possible if necessary. But like what should the demands of tech work organizing be? How should it begin? Like what are the ultimate demands? What, what do tech workers who organize, like what should they actually be aiming for in order to take advantage of the role, the leverage they have at these tech companies? So do you want to start? Um, think about it for a second. Uh, I, I think they're, they're uh, I mean, I think the, ult the ultimate demand is for, is for really worker power to, to, um, to be a thing in tech, to have workers make decisions um, in a democratic way. Um, but I think, I think maybe more, or one way to look at it is kind of in the shorter term, mm -hmm. um, what the demands are. And I think there are a couple of um, like kind of hot topics that are, that are um, 
the, at least I'm thinking about. Um, one is to basically end sort of the two-class system that, that exists in, within almost every major tech company. Um, at, my, at my company, we literally have different colored badges for contract workers and FTEs. Um, and, and that divide, I think, is really, really you know, hurting the ability to, to build solidarity. Um, I'll think, I'll think on it more of it, but I don't know if you want to. Sure. Um, so the Google walkout had a list of, I believe, seven demands. Um, it was triggered by a sexual harassment case of a high-profile executive. Um, so many of the demands related to the way that I was treated, including the end of forced arbitration. Um, they also had two demands that were more about structural power, one of which was worker representation on the board of directors. Um, Google actually bent on some of those demands and uh, got rid of forced arbitration in, I think, all cases now. Um, <clears throat> they ignored the worker representation on the board demand because that's an actual structural change and they're not going to give up power. Um, so that's a useful demand to, to make employees realize, like, well, why won't they give us that? What's, what, what they, what's the reason? Um, why won't they give us more control over what we build? Um, so that's a useful one, but long term, I think what we want is an industrial union, so a union of all tech workers and all stakeholders in tech, or more democratic structures like that. Um, one fantasy might be the next time a big tech company offers to build the Muslim database or to work with ICE. Um, well, certainly most of the people working in the kitchen there are Hispanic in California, um, so they should walk out and software engineers should walk out in solidarity with them. Um, so that's, the, that's kind of the dream. Yeah, I mean, also to kind of take advantage of being vague here. Um, I mean, I think some of the other some of the other uh, opportunities are um, for short-term opportunities. Is for for tech companies to start building solidarity across companies. Um, I think there's there is a lot of potential there, specifically around contract workers, because you know, as you said, contract workers are being shuffled around these companies. Um, but also another really big opportunity is around is around climate, um, especially with um, the stuff that's been going around, going around with Amazon, where you know a couple of years ago they had, they had promised to like be carbon neutral, um, and and uh, you know they, they can just like no, they, I think they've stopped at like fifty percent because they can no no longer live up to like or like have like this hypocrisy of you know trying really hard to get all these big oil companies onto their cloud computing platform, yet their cloud computing platform being like carbon neutral. Um, but I mean, that, yeah, that kind of brings me to my, to my second point, which is that um, not just cross-company, but it would also be really, really awesome to start seeing, um, you know, international solidarity with tech workers in other places um, in the world. Um, you know, especially with with the three big cloud vendors, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, spending literally billions of dollars monthly on building out data centers across the world. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are huge implications for um, for tech workers in other places, and 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 also just a, a really interesting uh, dynamic in terms of who really has the power, who really has the power of, of, of really basic infrastructure. Yeah, there's a really colonial pattern there too, right? Because it's like all these yeah. American tech companies mostly moving into like other countries and being like, we're just going to provide all the infrastructure because we came up with it first because exactly. we were funded by the U.S. military, like to exactly. a degree.